Father God, as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that the things that are to come, which you give us a glimpse into, will continue to shape how we perceive our present reality. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Questions about death, the afterlife, and what happens when you die is a topic of curiosity for almost everybody. This is not surprising because we don't get to ask dead people what happened after they died. And depending upon the season of life that you are in, that season of life will often inform how serious this issue becomes for you. For those of us in the room that are in our younger years, thoughts or questions about death can sometimes serve as maybe fun conjecture for us. For those of us in our advanced years, these questions about death and the afterlife become much more serious for us as we consider our own mortality. And for those of us who have lost loved ones, people who are very near and dear to our heart, who have gone before us, then questions about death may serve, on one hand, to be either a point of great consternation or perhaps significant relief. There are hundreds of quotations about death and the afterlife throughout history and throughout literature that try to encapsulate the significance of that time and moment and experience for those who are still living. You've heard everything from, on one hand, the notion that death is the great equalizer, to, on the other hand, death is not the end, it's just the beginning. Or perhaps you've heard the old saying, there are only two things that are certain in this life, death and taxes. And we all know that you just paid your taxes, so there's only one certainty remaining. You know, death is, and and dealing with issues of death are part of the ordinary things of life. This is common to the human experience. Everyone, in some way, shape, or form, has to reckon with death. And reckoning with the reality of death is certainly part of the ordinary days of a Christian. And so it's not surprising that as we've been going through the book of 1 Thessalonians and and the Apostle Paul is charting this course, reminding Christians about how their ordinary days intersect with a faithfulness to God and how God works in this world, that he turns his attention to death and the afterlife and particularly what happens when the Lord Jesus returns. And he does so. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So I want to ask you, if you have not yet grabbed a Bible, please open with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's found on that pew Bible there on page 987. And as he gives at least this section of where death meets the coming of the Lord, he does so to give us great encouragement and grounds for our hope for those who have died before us. Let me read. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13, says this. 
But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul begins this section and he says that we do not want you to be uninformed. Or some of your translations might say, we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, about what is to come. We don't have to go through our days of life wondering what will happen. God tells us. He tells us in different passages of the Bible, and we'll bring a number of them in today, as he tells us about a significant, the most significant event, the culminating event, you might say, of human history. What happens at that time when Jesus returns, and specifically in view of what happens for those who have already died. And so he begins and he says, essentially, don't be ignorant and grieve as those who have no hope. Now there's all kinds of cultural ideas about what happens to people who die. There's all kinds of ignorance about death and what happens in the afterlife, and being uninformed about something, of course, leads to all kinds of different conclusions, doesn't it? In the ancient world, there were a lot of different ideas about what happened to people when they die. Some believed that people who died went to Elysium. Elysium is the eternal glorious field for those chosen by the Greek gods. Others who had entered the church pressed that that only spirits of people rose from the dead, that there'd be no bodily resurrection someday, but that spirits separated from body for all of eternity. Many were concerned, of course, that whether or not they would see or be reunited with their family or with their loved ones in the afterlife. And people who'd become Christians who had learned about the fact that Jesus was coming back were concerned with the timing. When was he going to come back? And what was going to happen when he did? One only need take a small sampling of the different cultural assertions about death today to realize that there is either a wide variety of information that contradicts or that people generally are uninformed. Some assert that death is the end. That simply we cease to exist. 
Others, maybe following Eastern religions, assert that we will be reincarnated upon our death into a different life form. And depending upon the religious system, that we either ascend to a higher plane of being or that we reincarnate into a different caste system, which can often be a lower plane of being. Many haven't thought all that carefully about death and the afterlife because, quite frankly, it's painful. It's painful to think about what has happened to those who have gone before us. And therefore we tend as a culture just to take a conglomerate of things to pile it all together and assert things like the afterlife is a joyous place for everybody no matter what their life was all about. Or to casually assert that the spirits of the dead interact with and somehow affect the lives of the living. And so people casually say things like, I know that my dad helped me with that situation. Or I know that my sister has died, but she will always be with me. There are a lot of cultural ideas about what happens to the dead. But Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed. For the Christian... Questions about the eternal state of the dead are filtered through a specific grid. They're filtered through the grid of the imminent return of Jesus. And here, in verses 16 and 17, we get a picture of of that return, of him coming, descending from heaven on the clouds. And it's no surprise that throughout the Bible we see this again and again and again, that uh, uh, regularly we we are seeing look toward the coming of the Savior. That's part of the Christian life. Jesus himself reminds people of that. Let me read just a couple for you. John 14, 3 encourages us as Jesus says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Or Luke 12, 40, Jesus says, you also must be ready For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Or Hebrews 9.28, the author of Hebrews says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear sins, the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so, for the Christian, the life, again and again and again, is presented in the Bible as a life that has a dual field of view. A field of view that, in one sense, looks at what is happening right before us. And we go about the tasks of our days, and we try to be faithful to the Lord in them, and we do the next right thing. And if, we've said this all the time. If you don't know what to do, do the next right thing. <laughs> but the second field of view is the field of view that looks on the horizon line of your life or of history and says, Jesus is coming back. And how does that inform my perception of reality right now? I wonder if you go about your life with that dual field of view. You're used to functioning with a dual field of view. I know you are. 
So many of us do. I know for a lot of us, our dual field of view is, in one sense, we look to the next thing right in front of us. We do the next right thing. In another sense, we look for the next time that we can have fun. That's our dual field of view. Or I know that many of us here at Old North, I've observed this winter, have had a dual field of view. We do the next right thing that's in front of us, and we look for the next time that we can hop on a plane and go to Florida. Or, you know, I've gotten to know Pastor Chris really well over the last three years. We work very closely together. He's one of my closest friends uh, on this planet. And I know that when Chris and I are having a conversation with each other, I can tell which of his dual fields of view he's looking at. So whether or not he's engaged in the conversation with me or if he gets that glazed over look on his face. Sarah knows that look too. She sees that and he's thinking about whatever the next thing is. That's a dual field of view. I have a six-year-old who lives in a constant dual field of view. In one sense, she wants to do whatever she can to have fun or wreak havoc for all of those around her. In another sense, she's always looking forward to the next time that she can eat. That's her dual field of view. The Christian, the Christian life is a life lived with a dual field of view. Faithfulness to God in the present, ever looking to the imminent return of Jesus. And if that's true, it's natural to wonder questions about that return, particularly for those who have died or who have gone before us. And so, if Jesus comes back today, what happens to the dead? Would they be left out in experiencing the benefit of that return? Would the dead somehow be disadvantaged at the return of Jesus, perhaps experiencing it at a later time? But we who are left alive have the privileged position of witnessing it uniquely. And Paul says that, I do not want you to grieve as people who have no hope. Over my years in ministry, I've probably officiated dozens of funerals. So it's not surprising that when you have the opportunity to be with people in the midst of grief and crisis and difficulty, that you begin to see some patterns and habits that emerge in people over those difficult times. And I can say uh, with, with a level of certainty that Christians... And non-Christians grieve very, very differently. That there is a marked difference between the funeral for a person who knew Jesus and followed him in faith versus one who didn't. And those who are Christians see and feel and act differently in those moments. And the difference can be described with one word. Hope. And I get it, and you do too, because if you don't know what happens when a person dies or what's coming next, if you're unsure about the nature of God or the realities of eternity, if you look at a person's life, the life of the deceased, and you say, I don't know uh, what they believed in or where those beliefs led them to, it would make sense that upon their death that you would have very little hope. And the result of an absence of hope is that death has a horrible finality to it. That grief 
has a tremendous burden, an even greater burden than we might realize. That you are parted from your loved one with no confidence of what comes next or whether or not you will ever see them again. There's no hope that stands on a firm foundation. And death has won. But for those who believe the gospel, the promises of God to provide a unique future, this creates hope even for a person who has died. That's why Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. That's a foundation for hope. And before I explain that hope further, let me just say that this is the reason, this hope is the reason why the funeral for the Christian is significantly different than the funeral for the one who doesn't know the Lord. It's why the black shroud of grief is not entirely appropriate for the one who dies in Christ. It's why the wailing of sorrow sounds differently at a funeral of that sort than one who did not know the Lord. And I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the grief isn't real. It is, it hurts, it's tremendous, it's painful, it's stifling, it's heavy, and it's incredibly difficult. But there's hope. There's confidence. There's something beyond the grave. There's a coming resurrection. Both grieve, the Christian and the non-Christian. The distinction is that the Christian grieves with hope. And that's why Paul can say things like, where, O oh, death, is your sting? 1 Corinthians 15, he says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The Christian who is informed about the things to come has hope for those who have died in Christ. Why can we have that hope? Well, that's where he spends the bulk of his time in verses 14 through 17. We can have hope because Jesus died and rose again. Look with me at verse 14. He gives the ground or the foundation for hope and then what's going to happen next. And he says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Those who have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for the dead. He's not simply trying to point out a theological point to support the idea that there's not consciousness for those who have died 
or soul sleep as some call it, he's trying to say very simply that how we view the dead is informed by the one who was raised from the dead, namely Jesus Christ. So you understand that, right? That that if you're here today and you don't know where you stand with him or what your relationship with God is or what you think about Jesus, what God tells us about Jesus has direct implications for our lives right now, but also for our future. We ignore him at our peril. We follow him or put faith in him and embrace him to our eternal joy and delight. And here he tells us what's going to happen. He tells us uh, that in, in something that's often described as the rapture, Jesus coming back, descending on the clouds, and people being raised up into the sky. Now when you hear the word rapture, many of us immediately go to a popular book series or some Christian movies, or a variety of ways that people have tried to put this idea into writing or into film. And it causes all kinds of questions for us. And we, we ask good questions like, well, when is the rapture going to occur in the timeline of human history? Is it going to be before the Great Tribulation or after? And are Christians going to be there for the Tribulation or after as a result? I need to know this. Or, or maybe you say something like, um, well, what is more specifically going to happen at the rapture? I mean, are there going to be cars flying through the air too because there's going to be explosions everywhere? Or is there going to be a great plague or disease? Or how is that going to look that people are going to emerge? And, and what are those on the ground going to do after they see them flying through the sky? And, and all those sorts of things. And, and some of those are good questions and some of those are trivial questions and none of them are the point. Because here... He's trying to give us a partial description of what's going to happen so that we can be encouraged. And encouraged you can be. Because listen to this. Because Jesus' return is the culmination of a kingly procession that we see echoes of in his birth. That the humble baby born in the manger has a kingly star in the sky. And has people coming to him to give him kingly gifts. And we see this kingly procession a little more clearly in what we call his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is the day that we call Palm Sunday. As the people line the street of the King of Kings, the city of Jerusalem, they line the street and they shout to him, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they lay palm branches to pad the feet of his donkey as he proceeds into the city. A a kingly type of procession. But he was a different type of king. Rather than coming in in the white horse or in great chariots with a large army, He comes in humbly with some disciples on a donkey. But he will not come back humbly next time. Because the kingly procession continues. And here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we see a picture of a king who comes in all of his kingly glory so that everybody will recognize who he is. It says that he will appear with the cry of command from the archangel and the trumpet call of God. One of the chief 
angels of heaven announcing the presence of the coming king for everybody to hear. And the trumpets sound, and these trumpets are not trumpets where you would think of to be played for musical instruments for pleasure, but trumpets in the ancient world and in the Bible are often an announcement of royalty or an announcement of a battle cry. And so in the ancient world, you see the history writers were giving accounts of imperial entrances into the city, and the trumpets boomed so loudly throughout the city that everyone knew that the king had arrived, and even the deaf were made aware of his coming. And we see similarly in the Bible, the trumpet call of God announces something magnificent in its effect. Joel chapter 2, verse 1 in the Old Testament, the prophet writes, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Or Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes, In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Or Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 says that he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So when you see a picture of the king of kings, Jesus riding into earth from the clouds and the archangel's voice is heard and the trumpet call of God goes out and booms over all of the earth, no one will miss his coming. Everyone will know Glory and majesty and power will be displayed as he descends from the heaven. The king of all creation has come, the perfect one. All of the living will recognize him. And all of the dead will know of his coming. There's a word that the Bible uses to describe this event. It's called the parousia which means glorious return. And not only will the dead recognize his glorious, his glorious return, but they will certainly not be left behind, playing a secondary role to those who are living. In fact, just the opposite is true. The dead will have the place of priority in this glorious return. So he says in verse 15, those of us who are living will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Or verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. Notice the important qualifier. The dead in Christ will rise first. 
not all the dead, those who are found in Christ. The ones who will rise to meet the victorious king who comes to consummate his kingdom will be the ones in Christ. And if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that this spring that we went through a series in Romans 5 through 8, and we learned in Romans chapter 6 what does it mean to be in Christ. That when you put your faith in Christ, that God creates an incredible and mysterious union between you and Jesus in which he takes your sins away and he gives you his righteousness. You're united to him. Never, never, never for him to let you go that you are found in him and he is found in you. And the promises of God, one of the great promises that he will never leave you nor forsake you is accomplished in this way. That you're united to his son for all eternity. And we think about that as we go through our life and we ask Jesus to help us and we ask for Jesus' forgiveness and we ask for his guidance. And we know, in a sense, that we're united to him in life. But here we see that we are even united to him in death. And so Romans chapter 6, verse 5 tells us of our spiritual death and ultimately pointing to a physical death. It says, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 24, we talked about this on Easter Sunday. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then the end comes. Jesus is coming back. The dead will rise. The dead who has bodies have gone into the grave, whose souls have been with the Lord, will be reunited soul and body in the air with Jesus. Those who are left on the ground, who have faith in Jesus, will then be united with them in the air and they'll be with Jesus forever. This is the glorious physical reunion that we've been waiting our entire existence for. And it's coming. And so he paints this picture and he tells us what's to come and when we understand a little bit more clearly the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the glorious, unmistakable return of the king that everyone will know and recognize he concludes with this one very simple sentence. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There's a purpose why he tells us these things. Everyone reckons with death. It's part of the common human experience. It's part of the ordinary days. Every person in the room has lost someone who they have loved. It's been close to them. But he doesn't want us to be ignorant about them with regard to the returning of Jesus. Further, he knows that knowledge is not simply enough that we 
need more than knowledge. We also need encouragement. Because grief is heavy, because loss is hard, because our emotions so easily overtake us and skew reality as it really is. And so he says, encourage one another with these things. To encourage someone is to urge them or exhort them, to strengthen them, or by your words to give them courage and courage. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the different levels of depth of encouragement that we have in this life. That so many of you encourage people around you. You say things like, on, on a good level and, and still slightly a superficial level, great shot on the golf course, Pastor Marty. That was very Phil Mickelson of you. Or, or great job on that project at work today. Encouragement strengthens them, helps them move along. Or some of you encourage on a, a little bit deeper level. Last Sunday, we had one of our elders preach his sermon, and, and he did a great job. And many of you encouraged that brother with the truths that he spoke. And you said things like, hey, Mark, when you said this, God really used that to clarify this for me. Or, or Mark, when you said this, that helped me think about things in this way. Encouragement. And it's a different level because it's about really serious things. But there's another level of encouragement. And it's a level of encouragement that comes by reminding each other of the most important aspects of reality. It's one of the deepest types of encouragement. And that's the type of encouragement that he's talking about right here. When you have this type of encouragement to remind each other of the deepest aspects of reality, what does that do when you're, when you're engulfed in grief or pain or toil or struggle? It gives you courage to keep going. When you're reminded that Jesus is coming back and it's going to be a great and glorious day, it gives you courage to keep going. And so let me encourage you. I know that some of you are here today and you've lost a loved one. The grief is heavy still. Your parting is difficult. Take heart. If they're a believer in Jesus, Jesus has not forgotten them. And in fact, their spirit will reunite with their body as they are resurrected from the dead. Our comfort for those who passed yesterday is that Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Our comfort for those who passed yesterday is that Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Some of you are here and you are facing your own mortality, either because of your age or because of illness. Be encouraged. If you are reconciled to God through faith in his son, then a glorious union awaits you. Death is not the end, but it is the doorway to move to eternity with the Lord and with those who are his children. So take courage to finish strong and pursue faithfulness until the very, very end. Because our comfort for those who pass is that Jesus is coming back 
tomorrow. And some of you are wondering if you should follow Jesus. If he is worthy of your faith or your trust or your loyalty? Is he really worthy of parting from the things of this world that my flesh really desires? And is he worthy to surrender my life to? Take courage. Be encouraged. Because we see here that the humble Savior returns in a not-so-humble way in great might and power and glory and honor, and you do not want to be left watching on that day. Because what this text doesn't say, but plenty others do, that for some the day of the Lord is a glorious occasion, but for others it is the day of doom. So take courage in surrendering to him and trusting him and seeking to follow him with your life. Because he loves you. And he's calling you to that faith. Our comfort for those who passed yesterday is that Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Many of you have heard the story of Horatio Spafford. Some of you have not. Horatio Spafford was a Presbyterian layman in the 1800s in the city of Chicago. He established a very successful legal practice as a young businessman. And he was also a devout Christian. And among his close friends were several Christian evangelists, including the famous Dwight Moody from Chicago. Spafford's fortune evaporated in the wake of the great Chicago fire of 1871. He had invested a significant amount of his resources into real estate along Lake Michigan. And he lost everything overnight. In the saga that is reminiscent of the story of Job in the Bible, it was just a short time before losing everything in his financial ruin that his son had died as well. But the worst was yet to come. Desiring rest for his wife and for his four remaining daughters, and as well wishing to join D.L. Moody and Ira Sankey on their evangelistic campaign in Great Britain, Spafford planned a European trip for his family in 1873. And due to unexpected last-minute business developments that November, he had to remain in Chicago for a few days longer, but he sent his wife and his four daughters ahead on the ship as scheduled. He would follow on the next departing ship. And on November 22nd, as they crossed the Atlantic Ocean, the ship was struck by the Lockhearn, which is an English vessel, and it sank the ship in 12 minutes. Several days later, the survivors of the ship finally landed in Cardiff, Wales, and Mrs. Spafford was among them. But she sent a cable to her husband with two words. Saved alone. Their four daughters had died in the shipwreck. Spafford immediately left to join his wife. And as he crossed the Atlantic Ocean, on the part of the journey believed to be where the ship had broken up and his four daughters had died, he penned a hymn of worship to God, called 
it is well with my soul. How does a person say that after losing their daughters? Well, they can say that because they have a certain hope. And so listen to some of the words of the hymn. Not all of them, some of them. He writes, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And Lord, here's the confidence, here's the foundation. Here's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And Lord, haste the day when faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll and the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend even so it is well with my soul our comfort for those who have died yesterday is found in that Jesus is returning tomorrow so let's stand and sing those words together now and be encouraged, be encouraged as we do.